were ready, he would go. So we're in the third and final section of our series, The Gathering Storm. I'm worried about a series this long because after a while you don't remember what we've all addressed. And I'm kind of anxious to get back to uh, going through longer portions of Scripture rather than these more subject things. But we're, we're coming near the end. In section one, I address the changes in the culture that are separating us as believers more and more from the biblical categories and changing the concepts related to secularism and race and gender, sexuality, marriage, and family. Then in the second section, we looked at the five lies that we and our children are facing as we're struggling to live by truth, which has a cost, which is suffering, um, and a pressure towards assimilation. In the third section, we're transitioning in from last year's books that we read to this year's books, The Coddling of uh, the American Mind and IGN. Um, and we've looked at the fear of the Lord and training the child up in the way of the Lord uh, and the threat of what's called soft totalitarianism. So today I want to talk about the goal of parenting, uh, which is raising adults. Um, and I think that's really important. These are people who will be able to stand as adults wearing the full armor of God, prepared to stand in the spiritual wrestling match that we are engaged in. I want to look at a proverb today, Proverb 4. If you'll turn there with me, we'll read it and then uh, I'll talk about this. In Proverbs 4, the, the writer says, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her. And, oh, I'm sorry, I missed this. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Uh, do not forget and turn from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, meaning wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. You will, she will present you with a crown of beauty. Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and you will run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction, and do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they can make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. 
My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are of life to those who find them, and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Now this is a important proverb, but it echoes much of what the Proverbs talk about all through the, the book. Uh, we have the biblical pattern here of the parent, the father in this case, giving parenting and discipling to his son. And that pattern has the goal of the older generation teaching the younger generation uh, what Judaism calls door to door generation to generation. God intends the parents to teach the children the fear of the Lord, the way of the Lord, and the wisdom of the Lord. And that means that the purpose of parenting is raising an adult, not controlling a child. Really important to keep that in mind. That's not what's been going on in this culture and unfortunately in the homes of Jews and Christians for several generations. America has moved away from the idea that parenting, teaching, discipling, and education are intended to bring kids from dependency to competency as adults. Instead, for several generations now, we've moved more and more away from parental responsibility and parental participation to an, a complete outsourcing uh, and away from raising children to adulthood to raising them to be self-focused, safe, slow to mature students who follow their dreams. Reaching some level of maturity and responsibility later and later in life, if at all. Now there are several dynamics that have led to this. I want to discuss a few of them as we look at the books we are reading together. I'm having a little trouble breathing, you can see. Must be the air here. <clears throat> I want to talk about one thing that I think is really important. There's an expanding generation gap between the generations. And that is a major problem that is new, recently new, uh, maybe just in the last century or so. So not the way of the world up until that time. So one dynamic is the pronounced expansion of the generation gap and the, uh, associated with that, the shortening of generational length. In the ancient world, life was pretty much the same from generation to generation. There were changes. There certainly was inventions and technology and that. But life was pretty much the same from generation to generation to generation. And it developed in most cultures, and certainly in the biblical culture of Israel, the idea of children learning, then parents teaching their children, and then as the third generation becoming the elders and the advisors. Because they knew how life operated. And they could teach the younger generations 
excuse me, I'm going to sneeze here. Maybe I'm not. Thought I was. <laughs> uh, they would teach the younger gen- generations how to live life. Over a period of several centuries, the ancient world gave way to modernity. And modernity uh, began to change the way we live. Uh, That change began fairly slow, but picked up speed over the centuries. By the time we reach uh, the 1900s, we begin to see a cultural shift from rural to urban life, from factory and farm to factory and professional careers. Mass media went from print to publishing to radio to TV, and finally the internet and smartphones, which has driven the generation gap uh, significantly, as I have been harping on for years. My great-grandfathers on both my dad's side and my mom's side uh, lived during the mid-1800s. Um, the world that they saw in the mid-1800s was still fairly close to what their parents and grandparents had lived through. And so there was a common shared experience down through the generations with the older, wiser generations teaching the younger generations. But the degree of change that's happened in my lifetime alone and the rapidity of that change has made your children's generation staggering in its difference from even your generation. So the result of this rapid change has been a separation of shared experience. It's really important to understand that generational differences that we see are because the generations have experienced very different common experiences as a generation. And so my generation, the boomers, grew up with a unique post-war experience that was different than our parents who grew up in the Depression and then fought World War II. And then, of course, my children grew up in a very different world as the world was beginning to go in the area Uh, in the direction of post-modernity, which was rapidly uh, accelerating change and technology beginning to change um, as well. And so what begins to happen is the generations have less in common. There's less experience from the older generations that they can teach the younger generation because things are changing so rapidly. And the overlap then is uh, less and less. Now, that makes it really difficult for the older generation to teach the younger generation, and it disrupts the roles of elder and younger. There's a famous story in anthropology, uh, an article called uh, um, Steel Axes for Stone Age People, or something like that. What happened was uh, the Australian Aborigines lived in a time when they had stone tools. And one of the major stone tools was a a stone axe. And the axe was only allowed to be carried and owned by the elders. And the elders then uh, 
maintain the knowledge of how to use that. And when the younger people needed to use the axe, they went to the elder to get it. The elder gave them the axe, gave them the instruction. They would use it and then they would come back. This, this symbolized that notion of the experienced elder and the learning younger interacting and the respect of those who were wise and older. Well, what happened was uh, explorers and missionaries and anthropologists and others began to come in and to get information from their informants, they brought new steel axe. You know? And they would bring them and give them to the younger people so that they would talk to them. And so now you've got this more efficient axe in the hands of the younger people, instructed by outsiders. And what began to happen was a disruption of the whole system. Because now the older had to go to the younger to seek information as to how to use this, or for permission to use the axe. And it it just disrupted the entire system. That's really what's been going on in our uh, culture for several generations. Um, because of this disruption and the rapid culture change over time, sim- parents have simply given up trying to stay ahead of their children in technology and in education. Leaving the children in the hands of professionals, teachers and trainers, that are giving them a curriculum that the parents would probably not have given them had they chosen the curriculum. I'm going to talk about this later, but the curriculum of the secular worldview uh, is being operated through media, education, religion, and medicine, and becoming standardized. They're going to be given a particular line with a zero tolerance for variability in that framework. That begins to make this young generation that we're going to talk about more susceptible and more vulnerable to the kind of soft totalitarianism that's happening. And the reason for that is the generation uh, is not the same as their parents. I'll talk about the millennials here in a minute. So the loss of parental input and responsibility allows the children to be inculcated into a fear, but not a fear of the Lord. A way, but not the way of the Lord, and a wisdom that is human wisdom and not the wisdom of God. Now, I thought the generation gap between the war generation, my parents' generation, and the boomer generation was significant. It was, in effect, the first major rip in this modern world between two generations. And of course, my generation said, we don't trust anybody over 30, and we're going to make a better world ourselves because we can figure it out because we've got rock and roll, and, and we're in California. You know, that was, that was kind of our attitude. The older generation had messed the world up. We were going to fix it. Very idealistic, those baby boomers. Uh, we kind of messed the world up, I think, worse than our parents did. But I think that the difference between millennials and this group that are beginning to be called iGen may be greater uh, than, than the rift between my parents' generation and mine. And that's the generation that you are raising 
Uh, so we need to talk about that. Now remember, generations are formed through shared experience. And when you have an acceleration in media and technology and uh, pop culture and all of that, the kids grow up in a very different world than the parents grew up in. And that change means very little overlap of experience. Now, in the past, old technology remained part of the experience uh, even when new generations were getting new things. But now what's beginning to happen is there's a built-in obsolescence that removes the old concept or the old technology when the new one comes in. I'm going to give you some examples that I've seen happen. You probably can think of plenty yourself. When I was growing up, there was this thing called a party line. It wasn't a party line. It meant that several people were sharing the same phone line, and therefore one house would have a different ring than another house. And the rule was you're not supposed to lift up the phone when it's the other person's ring, though many of us would wait until after the other party answered their phone and then listen in on their conversation. Uh, to see what was going on in the neighborhood, right? Uh, then individual landlines developed, uh, and some of those had these real long cords. My parents had this cord that went all the way from the back room all the way out into the living room, and then about once every month, it had to be untangled. And that was my job, to untangle the, the uh the phone until one day my mom was walking out of the bathroom into another room just as I pulled the thing up and I, I dropped her in the hallway and I lost that job. Um, then we got cell phones and cell phones were, uh, were interesting uh, because now we could have phones there. But, but even when there were cell phones, people knew what a phone booth was and they knew what a public phone was. But then... What happened is we developed smartphones and slowly phone booths began to phase out. And that's why we have such a rough society because Superman has nowhere to change. You know, so that's, that's the problem. So when I was a kid, records were about this big and they ran 78 RPMs. And there was a song on each side. And that was the way records were. But as I was beginning to grow up, they shrunk these records down to a 45, and that became the standard record. And then they came out with this amazing thing called a four-track tape. Not the eight-tracks. That was later. The four-track. The four-track had a few songs on it, but the song would fade out so that the tape could change and then fade back in so you didn't get the full song. So eventually they came out with eight-track tapes that allowed the thing to con go continuously. And then cassettes. How many of you remember cassettes? All right. And then CDs, right? And now streaming, right? So those changes begin to happen. New people, their only experience is the current thing. And many of the old ones aren't even there. 
In the past, that wouldn't have been true. I remember party lines when we had a landline. When we had a cell phone, there were still landlines, right? And in some areas of the country, there were still party lines. There was more overlap of the experience of the generations. But that's going away. I remember my first uh, personal computer. You had to load from a tape recorder the program, and then from the tape recorder you loaded the uh, document that you were doing. And that took some time. You played it on a little reel-to-reel tape recorder. Then they came up with floppy disks. Then they changed the sizes of the floppy disk. Then they began to do, develop hard drives, then thumb drives, and now we have the cloud, right? Which works in my house part-time. My very first car was a 1949 Chevrolet. When you got in that car, you had to turn on the ignition, you had to pull out the choke, you had to pull out the throttle, you had to put your foot on the clutch, and you had to hit a starter button. And you had to get that all going till it got started. Then you had to run the throttle and the choke until the engine warmed up, and then you could drive somewhere with your stick shift. Then cars became automatic. Automatic in every way. You didn't do this anymore to roll up the window and roll down the window. They got rid of wind wings, which I thought was a great thing, and I wish they'd bring them back, right? And then we had automatics, and then we had uh, a new technology in the cars, right? Uh, seat belts. That was an interesting thing. We used to sleep in the back. But there was experiences of the older with the new. Because my generation used very old cars when we were driving. Because our parents weren't going to let us drive their car. They had a newer car. So we had what I call Frankenstein cars. They were jalopies built from parts from the, the places, you know, uh, the junkyards. Uh, now, Linda's got a car now that if you start to get out of the lane, it pushes you back into the lane. I don't like that. Uh, and, and there are cars that supposedly drive themselves, right? Again, this rapid change is such that it's harder for older generations to impart wisdom to the younger generations. I think we could go on with uh, all kinds of uh, discussion of this, but I want you to know that what I've just been doing is what is being done to your children. Things are being told to keep our eyes on the rapid change of culture, and that's not the issue. Because while culture is changing, there are two things that have never changed. One is truth, and the other one is human nature. The danger of believing in progress is believing that we are improving humanity. We're not improving humanity. We're just wearing different clothes and using different technology. But the evil nature of human nature, the sin that happens, is still there, but it's getting much more sophisticated. And I think the impact of this has been worse on uh, the iGen children. And so that's why I asked you to read the book iGen and the Coddling of America. So I want to talk about three things that are part of the book, The Coddling of America. I'm going to go into those 
not from the book's perspective. I'll mention the book's perspective. But I want to talk about what the Bible says about those things. So, the first one is fragility. This is the focus on safety above all else in the raising of children. Now, I don't know what your view has been on the COVID thing, but the, uh, the, the process that we have just gone through was much more political than it was medical. And the wearing of masks by children and keeping them away from schools for so long was not done out of an abundance of caution. It was not done following science, though science was involved in the process. The decisions were made mostly at the political level, and they were not concerned as much about the children as they were about the concept of safety. When I hear the term abundance of caution, I almost get nauseated, because it's... it's it's, it reminds me of when my parents used to tell me, you don't need to know the reason. I wanted to know the reason, and they would say, you don't need to know the reason. I'm doing this out of an abundance of caution. Well, tell me what you're worried about. Let's see what the risk assessment really is. We do the risk assessment. You don't do the risk assessment. Just listen to us. That's that push towards soft totalitarianism. We are raising children who are now more fearful than children in the past. I want to talk about this next time more. I just want to introduce it here. Uh, My parents were part of that great generation. And they were that great generation because they grew up in hardship in in the Depression. And then had to fight their teenage years in the war. In other words, they were toughened by the circumstances. Again, when I was a kid, we got hurt on playgrounds. Somebody broke an arm, somebody lost a tooth, many of us got bruises and scrapes, and we learned that life can be dangerous. And we knew what was really dangerous and what was not dangerous. But I defy you to get hurt on a playground today. They're made out of rubber and foam, and you just can't get hurt. And that's why, ultimately, what happens is kids grow up thinking they can't get hurt. And then they try stuff, and they get hurt. And then there's a lawsuit, and then we try to prevent anybody from getting hurt. We don't prevent them from weighing the, the, the risk that there might be We try to avoid the risk by more and more control. That's what sets this generation up for totalitarianism thinking. The second one is emotional reasoning. The focus is my personal reasoning, my personal experience, my personal feelings. And in a radically individualized culture, that becomes very, very difficult to address. And it went from trying to be inclusive to now everybody's got to toe the line. In the name of tolerance, tolerance has almost been lost because now you can't just tolerate something. You have to fully embrace it and accept it or you will be rejected. 
The third part of that book is about the good-evil dichotomy. This is probably the area where I'm going to want to talk more nuanced than the other two because here I think there's a danger in the way they're stating the issue. This is the idea that we can divide humans into good and evil people. They're, they're, they're arguing for the fact that we all have some good and some evil in us. I think that's true. But there are people who let their evil side go and people who strive towards their good side. And I think that dichotomy is part of a biblical concept. But when we turn it into political things or we turn it into racial things or we turn it into sexual things, then we create a dichotomy that is false. So we'll have to talk about that as well. Now in the book, iGen, I'm watching my time here, the author identifies a significant gap between the millennials and the iGen generation, that is between the parents in this congregation and the children growing up in this congregation. Uh, the millennials were still able to connect to modernity because they had parents and grandparents, many of which were still moderns. Now, what do I mean by a modern? A modern is someone who believes there is objective reality. That chair is actually... And it's made out of leather and metal. Objective reality. And there is truth. Postmoderns believe that there's only the perception of a chair there. There is no objective reality because we all see it through our own perspective. It's extreme relativity. And there is no truth. And so more and more they talk about their truth. And what they mean by their truth is their experience and their current emotional status. That is a major difference and I'll tell you why. Millennials grew up in the self-esteem movement. They got stickers and happy faces for everything they did. They were just uh, they were just told that they were the greatest people on earth. Everybody loved them. Why wouldn't they? They're so lovable. And they believed it. And they became extremely confident. Some people think narcissistic. There was a there was a real debate in the DSM five as to whether they were going to get rid of narcissistic personality because the millennials fit the category so well that they thought it might not be a disorder anymore. It might be a way of life, right? Uh, they, they kept it, but that was part of the issue. There was a confidence, not, not necessarily earned, but entitled among millennials. So millennials embraced life and said, let's go for it. Your children are not. They are growing up in a world that everything is increasingly becoming a dangerous thing. And they are highly individualized. They have much less shared experience with their peers than the rest of, uh, than you had. Uh, certainly more than I had. And as a result, there's a great deal of insecurity among this generation. And the insecurity is to be outside or not accepted or not part of the group. And that pushes towards conformity. 
And the conformity will not be biblical conformity. It will be cultural conformity. And again, that opens the door to this idea of soft totalitarianism. Uh, I, am, I, I think if, I don't know about the millennials, but I think if baby boomers in the height of the 60s would have been told that we had to wear masks because there was some kind of a plague, it just wouldn't have happened. We'd have been protesting everything, right? Uh, but we have more and more conformity going on, and I think that that's a, a real issue. So there is an insecurity, a fear of being unsafe in this generation, so much so that they are driving safer or not getting driver's licenses. They are uh, doing less alcohol because they don't want to be out of control. But they're more likely to get involved with marijuana and other things because they think that's safe. So the perception of what's safe and what's not safe is a big part of what's driving the current generation that's coming in to uh, Cal Baptist. Um, I, and I've seen the difference. That It's significant in terms of the people that graduated the last five or six years and the people that are currently in school. There is a major shift in the, in the perspective and what they're doing. They're very concerned about financial security and safety. All, all of this is about how do I get secure, right? And what's being told to them is that they will be secure if they follow a certain pathway. And that pathway tends to lead to government control and government uh, uh, entitlements and those kinds of things. So we're going to talk about those in the next few weeks. Now, I hope you'll look at the books uh, that we're looking at, not for answers. Um, I don't believe the answers are in those books. They're describing the problem. Uh, we're going to look at the Bible for answers. Uh, be, but I want you to know the cultural context of your children. Uh, because they are right up against that. And you are at least a generation past. I'm three generations past. It's very interesting when I have conversations with students at the university. And ask them questions uh, rather than tell them things. What I find is though. There is an enormous hunger among this younger generation for older, wiser people who will tell them straight what's going on, help them critically think, help them manage risk because they're just being told to walk this way. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to teach them the way of the Lord the fear of the Lord, and the wisdom of the Lord. And my hope is that this generation will be a light of maturity, but we're going to have to raise them to be adults and not children. And one of the biggest threats of that is this fragility thing. So I'm going to address that in full next time with biblical texts that talk about those dynamics. They don't call it fragility, but it talks about the dynamics of what matures, what hardens, what, what steals the person in 
the ways of the Lord. And so we'll be looking at that. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll open it up to Q&A.